In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Matthew, what, what would you say, like, by the time you, you were an adult, was part of your identity Mormon, kind of like I've been talking about? And, you know, how strongly did you have a sense of yourself as Mormon as an adult? Um, yeah, it was, it was when I was preparing for my mission, serving my mission and returning home from my mission where I did feel that, that sense of this is who I am. This is my identity. I didn't, it's interesting that how you described how you felt like you're going to be a Mormon and a Christian. I'm not, I was trying to think, did I, did I feel the same way? I, I do, I did have similar feelings like you seeing the lights at uh, Temple Square in Salt Lake City. And, and I just always loved Christmas time, just the, the weather. I love snow, except driving in it and I hate it. And just, you know, that's the time of season where you're reading about Jesus. You're reading from the Gospels usually. You know, you're not really usually reading from the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants and everything like that. You're reading the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But yeah, um, after I turned from my mission, and I was active for several years. So all the way through from probably t- age 20 and onward, that's kind of how I saw myself. I realized I forgot to share the other experience that was like the the end, the ending bookend to my mission. So I talked about you know the experience of going to Temple Square and seeing the lights before. And then uh, the first Christmas after I came home from my mission, we went to my great aunts and uncles. Uh, I think they were Methodists church for a Christmas Eve service. And that was one of my first experiences with a Methodist church. They had a, you know, a female pastor. And I remember coming out of the service and it was a beautiful service and it was a Christmas Eve service. So of course I felt like I could partake and, and be a part of that, right? Because I'm, although I was a Mormon, I was a Christian too. And my, I remember coming out, stepping outside after the service and you know, the, the pastor came out and was saying goodbye to her congregation and shaking hands. And my aunt and uncle were, and my family, my mom and dad and my siblings, we were all standing around just kind of talking. And I remember, you know, my, I mentioned before my, my great aunt was, she was from Brooklyn and she was outspoken. And she said to my dad, you know, something about when are, when are you going to come back to, you know, kind of the Christian faith, you know, because his family was always kind of giving him, a, giving him a hard time about that. And I remember thinking at the time, like, man, you know, why can't that Christmas Eve service be a, be a time when we can come together with other Christians was the way I was thinking about things, right? And not realizing that there were, I mean, I think I did, I did realize there were doctrines that set Latter-day Saints apart in, in vast ways from the, the, the broad swath of Christianity, but as a Latter-day Saint, I didn't see those as significant. And I think that's weird because I, on the one hand, I did see them as significant because they were supposed to be important, right? Those distinctives. Um, else, why would there be a need for a restoration? But for, for my sense of self, I think I didn't see them as significant. Like, why should they separate us from, from people who should share our beliefs? And 
So by the time I was an adult, being Mormon was definitely entrenched as part of my identity. You know, the mission gave me this feeling of being both different and special. And yet there was this desire within me to be accepted by broader Christianity. Um, when I got, when I got married, uh, I married into a Southern Baptist family. And I think I talked about earlier in, in another episode about how the Southern Baptists had held their convention in Salt Lake City the year I was leaving on my mission. So I had this sense that the Southern Baptists didn't like us, right? And so I remember the first Easter that Angela and I were together, I wrote an email to my future mother-in-law to kind of make that case. You know, Easter Sunday is coming. We both celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I know there's some doctrinal differences between us, but I think this is a time when we can come together as a family and, and, you know, celebrate together. And I don't remember exactly how I worded it, but that, that was what I was going for. Right. And, um, yeah, so I just had this, this desire to be accepted by Christian, you know, other Christians. And it's funny, but, I, but at the same time, I was, I was, I was fully in missionary mode when I was at work and stuff. You know, I, I told everybody at work, you know, that I was a Mormon every chance I got and I'd give away copies of the Book of Mormon to coworkers. And then, you know, when I, when I, um, transferred to a different division within my company in 2006, I remember talking to somebody and mentioning that I was a Latter-day Saint. And then they told someone else in the company that I hadn't met yet that, that I was a Latter-day Saint. And that guy came around to my cubicle and was like, Hey, you know, we do this Mormon scripture study, uh, every Wednesday morning. If you want to come in a little early, we'll do that. You know, and it's just interesting that there's like this group of Mormons doing their thing, you know, at the company I was working for. And, um, I remember one time in a business meeting, we were doing inter introductions going around the table and, you know, business meeting, your introduction should be kind of focused on what's important, you know, what, what your role is within the company, that kind of thing. And I remember introducing myself and saying, yeah, I'm a Mormon, but I only have one wife. <laughs> And I think about that now and it's so cringy, you know, so cringy. <laughs> did, did, did they laugh at that or were they kind of like, oh, like, wait a minute, so some Mormons was, do have more than one wife? <laughs> it was really awkward. It was really awkward because, you know, it, what does that have to do with, with what I was doing at work? Nothing. But, you know, it was, it was such a part of who I was that, you know, I was like, everybody's thinking about it. So I've got to make a joke about it, you know, but it just ended up being really awkward. Um <laughs> So, yeah, Matt or Michael, what about you? Okay, so by the time I left my mission, I definitely viewed myself as being Mormon. I, I really couldn't separate myself from that identity. I wanted to pretend that I could separate myself from that identity um, because, you know, I would I would constantly just feel like I didn't belong in the culture. I think that was just a huge part for several years after my after the mission. I'm like, just kind of felt like I didn't belong for whatever reason, but I did love the doctrine. Um, so in a sense, I kind of felt like, you know, how in, in the church you call everybody your brother or your sister because, you know, we're all children of God. But in a sense, I felt like I was sort of just their half brother. Eventually, the ward that I was in started to view me as kind of being a really good speaker and being the smart guy. And they wanted me to you know, give presentations. And especially after I published my first book, A Biblical Defense of Mormonism, you know, they wanted me to, to, to present and people would ask, ask me questions a lot more like in church and things. So it kind of softened that blow. And I felt a little bit more like I'd been accepted by the ward. And I guess once that happened, you know, I was pretty much content to be Mormon in every single way. And as you know, Paul, what that led to was basically me using a huge swath of my time defending the church. And I did that online for the most part. And you got to see that. Um, I'm sorry <laughs> that you had to deal with me as a, as a Latter-day Saint apologist. You were one of the uh, better ones to deal with for sure. Just your, your, your personality and, and your, the way you handle yourself uh, with people. And it, it, it was not like dealing with, with some other LDS apologists at all. Yeah. Now I do, I do 
it, it's really interesting for me now to interact with LDS apologists. You know, I don't, I do see a difference with kind of the personality, you know, that they have as opposed to what I had, but I do think that their conviction runs just as deep as mine did. The difference with me is that I, I think I just learned to play a part or just, I don't know, to be more polite about it and kind of almost act like I was open to the idea, you know, or that I was open to something else being true, like so that I'd come off as being more fair and um, unbiased. But deep down inside, you know, I really believed that even if the whole church fell apart, and there was just a few of us left, I would be one of those select few that nothing on earth was going to separate me from the church. So that's that's how entrenched I was with it. And I just, you know, I probably spent every waking moment during those years just, you know, thinking about arguments that people had made and just trying to think about every single angle and how can I come up with something to beat this argument. And I remember I was actually... This is something I was really proud of at the time, but I was debating Rob Bowman uh, Jr. in one of the one of the forums, and he ended up kind of having to tell me, like, look, Michael, just because you're creative doesn't mean that what you're defending is true. And I, I totally took that as, you know, being like, oh, like, he's basically admitting that I'm right. <laughs> Oh wow! Like he's he's backing down from the fight because he can't take me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Man. Have you talked to him about that since? No, <laughs> no. But but I was such a brat. I mean, I just look back at myself. I'm like, what the crap, Michael? Like, what? What? <laughs> I think so highly of myself. I I don't know, but. I remember speaking of, of Robert Bowman Jr. I, I think he's awesome. By the way, I'm just gonna have to throw that disclaimer out there right now because there's this secret group on Facebook with all the Mormon apologists. It, you know, it's called uh, Anti-Mormonism Unveiled. But you, got, you basically you talk about all the anti-Mormons there and kind of make fun of them and and their arguments. It's pretty much what it's for. And I was like, hey guys, uh, did you know that there's a biblical prophecy about about Robert Bowman and they're like, what are you talking about? You know? And so I pull up the Genesis account where Joseph is blessing his son Ephraim. And as former Latter-day Saints, I'm sure you remember this, this blessing because you basically take it to me and like, Oh, his branches run over the wall, you know, like, Oh, that's, he's going across the ocean and, and that's the Nephites, his descendants. But it says that the archers have shot at him sorely and hated him. And I said, guys, what's another word for archers? Ooh. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, that's my good. gosh, you're so brilliant, Michael. And I just ate it up. And I'm like, yep, see, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's he's an anti-Mormon, just like Genesis said that he would be. Are you still in that group, by the way? I'm not. No, okay. I I was kind of hiding out in there for a while, but I eventually outed myself. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm an anti-Mormon. Now they're like, wait, what? <laughs> you are? Like, <laughs> get out of here. So, they so I've, I've, heard you, uh, I've heard you reference that group before, but not by name. Just as the secret, you know, LDS apologist group. And so it's interesting that you, you mentioned the name. What, because I, I was brought into a group like right when I was leaving the church. So it would have been like 2009, 2010 timeframe. And I was probably still in and I was, I was brought into a group with that name. I don't know if it's the original or if it's another one that somebody started because the one I was in just seemed to be one person posting a bunch of stuff, right? It was, um, oh, what was, what did he go by? You you know him, Vicente. Um, oh, Vicente, Vicente de la Paz. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if it was, I don't know if he like started his own where he just made lists or if that was the actual group, but I was invited into that group by him and that's was in there for a while. That's, that's different. A different group. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's so I never was in the super secret. Okay. Um, Shoot. I'm sorry. I but thought no. I, I thought I was part of something. This is, this is like the, the Eagle's nest all over again, man. <laughs> 
So I wow. feel bad now. I should have just let you live that delusion, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, this is like the one time ever in my life that I've been able to be like, oh, I was part of a secret exclusive club and you weren't. <laughs> you know, besides the chess club or something. <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, well, I was in that group too. I mean, that's when you know there's this there's this huge secret plot. So a lot of us were members of this debate group called Mormons and Evangelicals at the time, and we just didn't like the way that the admins were treating us. We felt like it was uh, like we were being attacked all the time, and and people started kind of talking in there about taking over the group. So you know where that where that's heading because. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of started talking to me. I was an admin in the group already, but I kind of had left because I'm like, you know what? Like, I think I was starting to have a little bit of a faith crisis. I was like, this probably isn't a good place for me to be. So, like, peace out. But then I found myself drawn back and I couldn't explain why, but I'm like, I kind of want to be back in that group where everybody's constantly attacking the church. And I don't know if it was just, you know, morbid curiosity or what, but I ended up going back in the group and one of the other admins added me as an admin again without really telling the owner that he did it and since i wasn't official i kind of had this rebel mindset anyway i'm like oh i'm like this renegade admin now like how fun and and so they started talking about taking over that that group and they started kind of telling me like oh the owner's mia like nobody's seen him in forever and we need to get rid of all the admins and clean house and make it, you know, so it's more fair for us Latter-day Saints. And I totally bought into it because I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can't have them attacking my tribe when I have the power to, to do something about it. And so, yeah, I went and I went in one day and I kicked out all the other admins, which, you know, is funny because I'm, I own a group now, Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints. Um, by the way, I made that group when I was LDS and it was totally a knockoff of Mormons and evangelicals to get people to, to join my group instead of that one. So it was, it was very um, kind of a bitter thing to do. So the, the owner shows up asking for his group back. I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's not MIA. Like he's not deceased. Like he's really here and he wants his group back. So I gave it back to him and Oh my goodness. The LDS people in that secret group, they were having a heyday over what I did. They're just like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that's ever happened on the internet, you know, which I put Barks, uh, D. Lawrence Barksdale as my admin, uh, which is crazy. But, you know, I ended up giving it back and they ended up kicking out like a lot of the Latter-day Saints in that group. But I was really surprised because I was expecting them to give me the boot, too. And they kept me there. They never booted me out of the group and and they all just basically forgave me. And I was like, wow, you know, I can't, I wasn't expecting that. And I think as a Latter-day Saint, when you're dealing with, with Christians, you, you kind of, you kind of test them, you know, try to drive them crazy so that they react like aggressively almost so that you can say like, Oh, you're not, uh, you guys aren't Christian. You know, you're not acting like a Christian, but they totally just, you know, turn the other cheek and, and they, accepted me and i was like man you know i almost feel like these guys are my clan right now more than Mm. the latter-day saints are and it was such a turning point for me because it just made me really respect christians and it just you know i think it could have gone the other way if if they'd just been really bitter towards me but Mm. they just didn't i mean they just they just forgave me so openly so that was a big change for me for sure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure I want, I want to address an elephant that might be in the room. If, if Latter-day Saints, if there's any Latter-day Saints listening, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how the LDS church and LDS culture has a kind of focus on, on Mormon distinctives that set Latter-day Saints apart. And there's a sense in which we've each kind of described this tribe mentality, right? They're, they're, Latter-day Saints were our people. We were part of that group. Um, we saw ourselves as set apart, as special, right? As part of the Lord's army and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, I think there, there's a sense in which tribe mentality can also affect Christians of various denominational affiliations. Would you, would you say that's fair to say 
Matthew? Yeah, I would say that's the case. Um, the thing is, is I don't have personally a lot of experience visiting different denominations myself, uh, just because I spent like almost a year studying everything out before I, you know, decided to go to the church that I attend now. Um, I kind of I was attending two churches for a while, um, but you know, I don't really have a lot a huge spectrum of churches where I've been to and talked to people. But but talking to people online you do see that there is kind of a tribal mentality to an extent. Um, and it can be either a small, you know, it can be, it's, it's an entire, there's, there's a whole gamut of, of how it ranges in terms of the tribal mentality. I think in, in Christianity, we've, we've spoken previously about how there's these, there are these core doctrines, these core values and ideals that all of Christianity, all Christians, they can rally behind. We have the early creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, where all Orthodox Christians, not Orthodox in terms of Eastern Orthodox, but within the realm of Christian Orthodoxy, uh, we all rally behind these these creeds, or the doctrines within those creeds. And so there's, there is something that ties us all together, but at the same time, I do feel like there's this kind of like fl- friendly rivalry between denominations. Um, and I try to keep it friendly and, you know not too serious. I think it's okay to debate these types of things. And you'll see a lot of Christian debates about baptism. You'll see Christian debates about gifts of the spirit, about um, worship, you know, church structure, like all these different aspects of church life and and Christian life will debate. And naturally when you've studied the scriptures and you've studied out the arguments and you've come to your, the conclusion that you feel is biblical, you, and you want to unite with the denomination that, that lines up with how you view scripture you feel, at least I, I can understand the feeling of feeling like you're at home and feeling like this is how you know this is this is the way that we're supposed to view scripture on on these particulars, and I feel like this is true, and that's why I'm lining up with this denomination. But it also requires a lot of humility to recognize, you know, I don't know for certain if I'm right on all these issues. We really have to humble ourselves and remember that, and uh, remember that what matters is in Christ. But yeah, you do see you do see kind of rivalries, some friendly, some not so friendly between the denominations and the distinctives. And sometimes it can get ugly, and I and I really don't like it, um, especially because I go to a Reformed Baptist church. We feel very strongly about what, what's commonly called uh, tu- you know tulip the Calvinism. Um, the doctrines of grace. There's different names for it, but the the, soter- the soteriological view of Reformed Baptists and similar denominations like Reformed Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, etc. So we feel we feel very passionately about these distinctives or these these this view of Scripture and how God sovereignly decrees all things for His glory and choosing His people to glorify himself and his mercy and his love and demonstrate that in the world. We feel very passionately about that because we feel it's God's truth. And I think whenever you find something to be true and something to be important, something that you hold close to your chest, you're going to be passionate about it. And when you find someone that disagrees with you, I think it's natural to find that you get into conflict with them to a certain degree. Um, so yeah, there, there is, there can be a tribal mentality. And, and so I am one to try to, I'm not, I don't know if I always do it, but if I have a brother that's reformed and you know we're, we're criticizing someone's arguments on the other side, I try to think about this and step back and say, okay, we got to remember we're all in Christ. There are, there are men who are that I disagree with firmly about certain things and certain ways they teach, teach certain things. I won't mention their names specifically, but they're public figures. And they, they go vehemently against the doctrines of grace and the reformed theology. And I have real problems with them, but I also recognize that that they don't really believe anything that's downright heretical. You know, they they accept the deity of Christ. They believe in the Triune God. They affirm that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So even though we disagree on these things, I have to recognize that he's my brother in Christ, and and that I need to love him as a fellow brother. But um, but we don't always do that. You know, we're we're sinful beings. Even after being justified, we make mistakes, and we we can be taken over by pride at times. And we also get short-sighted, you know, we're still humans. We still think our way is the best way. And it's hard sometimes for us to put in our, ourselves in other people's shoes and understand their situation or their understanding or, or their walk with the Lord. So it's a really long answer. I hope that addresses it, but yeah, basically yeah. too long to read. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really good. That's really good. Michael, how would you address that elephant in the room? Well, you know, I, I was just thinking about back when I was 
an LDS apologist, one of my favorite tactics to use, especially if I started getting painted into a corner, was to find something to make the Christians argue with each other. And it was really effective. Um, oh, you were that guy. I, I could be. Yeah. I remember there was one time where I got two people in my, in my forum to, to debate, you know, probably for a couple of hours. And, you know, I was back in that secret group and we were just lounging around like, okay, you know, who's making the popcorn? Basically, like, you know, it's like we just won because we're making them argue with mm-hmm. themselves. And I had an experience like that in real life, too, because, you know, after that first discussion I had with Ed Enox, I ended up going back there and talking to them a couple more times. And I went over one time. Now, Ed was was reformed. And uh, and one day I went over there and he had a Greek scholar with him, a Christian. And so, you know, he was all happy because he's like, we're going to we're going to set you straight now. And so they started talking and they started telling me about predestination and and I'm like, okay, you know, so I grabbed this whiteboard and I like kind of drew a mark on it and threw the marker down like, you know, real chaotically. And I'm like, was that predestined? And they both answered at the same time, but they answered differently. One of them said yes. And the other said no. And so then they looked at each other and they started arguing with each other for, you know, a couple of minutes. I mean, they're just going at it. And then, you know, they're like, wait, 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 like the Mormons are here, you know? And, and then they stopped, you know, and, and like kind of repositioned themselves. So it just, all that stuff really reinforced the notion that, you know, there was a great apostasy and the church is fractured and, you know, it's not a cohesive unit anymore. Now, after coming out of the church and seeing things from my new point of view, I do have to say it, it doesn't look like it's as fractured to me as I thought it it did when I was a Latter-day Saint because, you know, there are these unifying doctrines. And for the most part, I feel like, you know, people on the different sides of the divide do do view each other as Christian, you know, and it's not a, a deal breaker. It's like, yeah, it can get heated. Um, but at the same time, I realize now that, you know, debate is a lot more of a Christian cultural thing than it was a Mormon cultural thing because when I was Mormon and I saw people debating, I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's, you know, they're contending in anger. You know, this is the devil's, you know, they're servants of the devil or whatever. And now I'm like, no, this is just a normal thing uh, that that people do. And I do think it can get a little bit heated. And like Matthew said, there can be some, some tribalism, you know, and it's, it's like, uh, you know, I have, I have some, some Calvinists in my family and it's like, I just got out of the church and, and they'd be asking me, you know, all the time, like, so have you, uh, have you become a Calvinist yet? You know, and I'm just like, really? <laughs> like, give me some time, guys. I just left, you know, the church. And so I would just kind of like give a comeback. Like, I don't know if you, if you asked God about it, <laughs> you know, something like that. But, uh, so yeah, sometimes I would, I just feel like, you know, people are just trying to, to drag you into a, a certain position or, or something like that. And it's like, you know, I think I'm in, in the spot now where, you know, I've said in the past that I would never be Protestant, that I would never leave the church um, and things like that. And it seems like every time I say I'll never do something, it ends up happening. So at this point, I just say, you know, I don't know what the future is going to bring. You know, I may become Calvinist someday. I may become any number of things. I don't know. Hmm. But I'm I'm pretty accepting of of any any position, you know, as long as somebody is a is indeed a Christian and they they hold to to the orthodoxy, you know, ortho, Christian orthodoxy. Then yeah, it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, yeah. I threw this I threw this question in because you know we're talking today about identity and that that really goes to as we've been talking about a person's sense of self and and how they feel about themselves, what you know the view they have of of their beliefs, their values, everything. So um, I know a lot of times as a Latter-day Saint, you know, I, I internalized the way other, the way Christian denominations would interact with Latter-day Saints. And I took that at times as a personal attack because I, as I said before, I wanted to be, I wanted to be Mormon and have those distinctives, but I also wanted to be accepted within the broader river of Christianity. And you see that a lot talking to 
Mormons online um, where, you know, the question will come up, why can't you just accept that we're Christian? And, you know, the debate rages and goes on and on about are Mormons Christians? How do you define a, what a Christian is and is not that kind of thing? And um, so I wanted to throw this question in because, you know, a lot of times you'll see the argument made by Latter-day Saints. Oh, you know, the Protestantism is so fractured. There's 46,000 or how many ever, you know, whatever number they're throwing out these days, you know, denominations and none of you are aligned. And, and, you know, there's this sense in which they feel like, I think that, Hey, we've got some distinctives. You have some distinctives. Why can't you just accept us as Christian? Right. Um, and, you know, Matthew, you touched on it. We're, we're not aligned on the essentials. And that's, that's where there is alignment between, you know, Christian denominations with each other. And there is not alignment with Christian denominations and, and Mormonism. And, but I, but I did want to throw this question in there because I think it's fair to say, you know, Hey, you know, tribe, tribal mentality can affect Christians of various denominational affiliations. I remember, when I was coming out of Mormonism and into Christian church an independent Christian church um, that's affiliated with the American restoration movement, I remember going to a Sunday morning Bible study and one of the elders at our church was in the class. Uh, and another of the elders at the church was leading the, the Bible study. And um, they, you know, there was a discussion going on uh, and, and, and I could kind of sense like, the, the church was going through a transition uh, in lead pastors, right? The guy who'd been leading the church uh, for a lot of years, I think like 30 years, um, was retiring and a new young lead pastor was, was kind of taking over right at the time when we were coming in. And so there was that transition taking place, but there was also you know kind of like a cultural shift taking place, which which you learn kind of sometimes happens when there's a a change in pastors and um, but there I could kind of sense that there was maybe a shift taking place away from away from some distinctives towards a more evangelical stance because within that Bible study that one Sunday morning the one elder was asking the other about some of the distinctives of the restoration movement like um, you know there being a view of, of you know that comes from you know, broader Protestantism of, of there having been a, a great apostasy and um, baptism by immersion, you know, as being the, the proper method for baptism and some of the other distinctives and just kind of making the case that some of those distinctives seem to be taking a back burner and kind of where does that leave, you know, the church and and there was a discussion going on and I, I kind of felt like an outsider listening in uh, because I was new and, but I, I was also fascinated because I was trying to understand what, you know, what was being talked about. And then as I went on to study, um, in seminary, you know, I, I read books, you know, like evangelicalism and, and the restoration movement where it was kind of, kind of became clear to me. There were a couple of books like that. And it kind of became clear to me that, you know, kind of late nineties, early two thousands, maybe there was a, a focus on, uh, kind of a shift towards a more evangelical stance within, some restoration movement churches. And I asked a, a trusted pastor friend of mine about this this morning because I wanted to get his take on it because he grew up in, in the American restoration movement churches. And, and, and he said, yeah, again, like when he was a, when he was a, a youngster, like there was definitely a more of a focus on, on restoration movement distinctives than there is today. And I, I and I kind of have been wondering in thinking about this question, you know, if, if it's not maybe just a product of Mormonism, because we've talked a lot about how, the LDS church instills its distinctives in, in young people, um, children. And I kind of wondered if, if that wasn't just a product of Mormonism, but maybe a product of, of early to mid 20th century approaches to denominationalism within the U S and, and then maybe since, you know, the rise of modern evangelicalism, uh, since the Jesus movement of the 1960s, that maybe that, you know, more broadly within Christianity, uh, from a sociological perspective has kind of shifted. And I think that's probably the case. But like I said, I wanted to ask this question and, and throw it out there so that any Latter-day Saints listening, you know, won't feel like we're saying, hey, you know, the fact that Latter-day Saints focus on distinctives and we all kind of had this feeling like we were Mormon, it was a part of our identity, that that's nefarious in some way, because I don't think it is. 
but I thought it was fair just to throw this question in there. I had a thought when you were talking, but then I lost it again. I swear I'm getting old, guys. I'm sorry. Give me a second. Um, Please don't say that. If you're Grand Matthew. <laughs> that does not have the same flow to it. Grand, Grand Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Grand Paul and Grand Matthew. <laughs> um, Is that kind of like Grand Moff Tarkin? <laughs> yep. As long as he's not CGI. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Well, it was just talking about distinctives. Um, there's there's one quote that I really like from Spurgeon. First, I was going to share that, and I clicked out of it, and I lost it. Okay. So Charles Spurgeon, he is a Reformed Baptist pastor in England. It's funny because he's quoted by many Baptists, and they don't even know he's Calvinist. <laughs> so uh, when they find that out, it's kind of a surprise. But anyway, it's a short quote, and I've said it before, but it's one I really enjoy. He says, I do not ask you whether you are a Wesleyan, a Baptist, or a Presbyterian. My only question is, are you born again? And I thought it was a good quote to reiterate just because I think it's summed up a lot of what we've all been saying is that I think, I think Christianity is all, it's interesting because I think Christianity as a whole really needs a second reformation in the sense of we need to go back to biblical doctrine because so much of it is straying away from that. And at the same time, but at the same time, not sacrificing, not, not watering down the gospel or watering down scripture, if you see what I mean. Um, I don't know if you guys know, you guys probably know C.S. Lewis more than I do. I've only read a little bit of some of his works, but he, he wrote the book on um, uh, mere Christianity. And, I'm, and I, I hear what other people say about it. I haven't read it myself, but kind of this idea of saying we need to boil it down to the basics. You know, we need to go back to this, this, um, this core of Christianity, and that's what we need to focus on. And I wondered, and I was thinking about that and wondering if that ties into what you were saying, Paul, about uh, the sociological shift in terms of how we view each denomination and how we share the gospel because I, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't call Joseph Smith a liar when he said that all those people back in the 19th century were fighting over each other over the topic of religion. You know, I believe that was certainly the case. They called it the burned over district for a reason. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can't, we can't just wash, push that under the rug and say, Oh no, Christians have always gotten along. We've never fought. You know, <laughs> yep. everything's been great. You know, <laughs> so yeah, ex- exactly. That, that That's the elephant in the room, right? Like we, we, the three of us on on the podcast, we talk about how you know we have Christian unity between us, and, and we do. You know, you and I, Matthew and, and and Michael, we we don't agree on everything, and we found that out as we as we talk. But we talk, and we view each other as as brothers in Christ, and we treat each other with with grace, and and try to have an approach towards one another that's that's humble. And you know, I just wanted to make the point that you know, yeah, I recognize that may, maybe. Um, you know, earlier in the last century, there there was more of a focus within denominations on distinctives, and, and maybe that's fading a little bit. But that doesn't mean that um, we give up biblical principles, principles, as you said, and that doesn't mean we give up the essentials. So, just just a nod to to any Latter Day Saints that may be listening. That that yeah, there 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 probably has been some some disagreement, but um, the essentials have always been uh, part of the faith. And, you know, not just, not just since they were enumerated at the early, you know, the beginning of the 20th century as part of the fundamentalist movement, even, even before that, the essentials were part of the Christian faith. So, and if I can just jump in here too, cause I mean, but what that really brings to my mind is having some differences is a really positive thing. If you ask me, because I can, I can see some of the different thought processes and I think that they're good for different people. And when I was in the church, it was a one size fits all. And if you didn't completely agree with something, then it was just a nightmare being in the church. So I think it's great to have that freedom to, you know, belong to a denomination that fits, fits your beliefs and, and your personality even. And to still be that, be part of the, the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So as you made your faith transition, did you experience a disturbance in the full? <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. Did you, did you uh, experience execute orders? <laughs> sorry. Oh, um, did, did you experience uh, a disturbance in your sense of self? And if so, what was that like? So, you know, earlier, Paul, you said uh, you, you were kind of talking about that song, I'm a child of God. And 
that was one of the things that just gave me my my sense of identity too growing up is you know i'm i'm a literal child of god and all the things that that entailed you know it, it meant like my father told me when i was when i was young you know as a literal child of god i had the potential to become a god myself one day and i always thought that that was really cool i, I thought that 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 brought me closer to god i'm like oh wow i'm i'm his literal child um but as time went on and as i came closer to my faith crisis and i think what really brought me into it was was studying grace and and trying to answer the uh, the impossible gospel approach which says you know that if we're not if we're not perfect then we are not worthy of grace and so i was trying to to be worthy and i was really watching myself and and i was seeing that i was not that i wasn't perfect i wasn't even close to it and i wasn't getting closer to it every day like a lot of latter-day saints claim that they are and because of that you know i i was also kind of looking back and it was really far and few between whenever i would receive revelation from god or feel like the spirit was talking to me and so i really felt like i was i was a child of god but i was an estranged child of god it's like yeah by blood i'm his child but because i'm not worthy he doesn't want to have anything to do with me or or talk to me. I just didn't feel worthy of that distinction most of the time. And and then when I started going through the faith crisis, you know, I I started to really question my identity because it was completely wrapped up in the church. I mean, I think I've talked about it before, but I would just I'd wake up having panic attacks and just not knowing where I was or you know what what year it was almost just like i'd wake up thinking that you know i'm 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 still mormon or i'm gonna get sucked back into the church so it's just it's just i guess i'm unraveling the you know the i want to say mind control but maybe that's not the appropriate word to use um but just everything that had been tied into the church in my mind and i remember calling my my pastor even a year after i left the church I, i have issues trying to piece my identity back together and ended up calling my pastor and, and he helped me out through a lot of that. But it's just like there were, there'd be layers of me trying to put myself back together. Cause I'd go through something and then I'd think that I was okay. And then I'd start falling apart again. So it was just a really tedious time of, you know, trying to reestablish myself because it's like, you know, you leave the church and you're like, if the church isn't part of my life, then who am I even? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Matthew, what about you? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think my, I, I really agree with what Michael said. Uh, I, I can connect to kind of what he was feeling is this sense of just, you feel like your entire world around you starts to, to, you start to see cracks in the wall, you know, and you start to see those cracks grow. And so you try to get some spackle and try to cover up the cracks and then other cracks grow elsewhere and you try to fix those. Yep. And it's just like this never ending. You just feel like the whole house is just shattering around you and you have no, nowhere to go for safety. And it's just, it's like a terrifying experience. But I think it really, for me, it kind of started right after my mission because I was so pumped for my mission. You know, <laughs> it took me a long time to really love my mission because I was in France and I could, like, everybody always told me, oh, you speak French really well, you know, like we can understand what you're saying. Most missionaries, you know, they struggle, and I'm like, okay, cool. But my my speaking, I guess, was okay, but my comprehension was just terrible. You know, like I could read with my eyes, I could see the words, but French is so fast, and the words all flow together that I couldn't parse out the words in my mind. So, like, literally for six months, I would ask somebody a question on the street, they would spit out a whole bunch of stuff, and I would say, oh, okay, cool. Um, so, do you like your family? <laughs> You know, I would I would continue on from where I hoped that they had answered. And for six months, it was just a nightmare. And so I just didn't like it at all. I just didn't like not understanding people. But then once I started to understand, I really loved it and I wanted to stay. I didn't want to go home at the end of my mission. And coming home, it was just rough because to me, that was my whole life. That's who I was. I was a missionary and I just didn't want to do anything else. I wanted to stay out there. And I've mentioned before, but I still have dreams occasionally where like I'm I'm in my dream and I wake up and I'm on a train getting off at some train station in France and like I can visualize the street where I lived in a little town called Am- or Betune, my first town. And I go and meet the missionaries and we're going out and, you know, talking to people on the street. Like it's still, it's still so ingrained in my brain, like 
there's this part of me that that like won't go away <laughs> um yeah so like when i came home i was begging and like i went to a singles ward just because like i don't know i didn't feel comfortable going to my dad's ward i don't know you know it's it's kind of weird going back to a family ward so going back to where there were other kids my age in college i was like ah, this is a little bit more cool it wasn't super awkward like i was worried about you know i'd, I'd gone to a singles ward before my mission and it was really cool so going to the singles ward was helpful but like i was just be- i remember begging my bishop i was like please like just give me something to do you know like i just felt so useless like i just like you know i would go to church and then that was it and then i would go home and i just wanted a teaching calling or something you know and i just remember for months and months and months just begging and i never got one and it was like over a year later i think that i got a, a calling finally but at that point i just didn't care anymore <laughs> you know so um because they always beat it into your brain you know like you know when you go home don't stop being a missionary and i'm like I mean, I talked to my mom and my family, but like, they're not really interested. And my dad's already Mormon. So who, you know, I'm trying, but <laughs> I don't know what to do. So that's kind of when like the cracks start, first started showing, I think, and my identity was like, because I, I felt like that was, I absorbed that into my identity. It was, I'm a missionary and that's what I am. And I'm going to keep doing that after my mission. And I really struggled to find ways to, to continue doing that. So that's when this crack started appearing and I started getting depressed and I just had a really hard time after my mission. and. I went straight into college, like, you know, two or three weeks after I got home from, from my mission. And I was already taking, you know, intermediate calculus and intermediate physics and all these different courses that were like, I hadn't taken these, the first course, you know, the, the introductory courses for like three years. Cause I took a year before my mission to save some money and then I served my mission. So it'd been three or more years before, since I'd done this and I had no time to <laughs> prepare. So that was stressful. And yeah, it was just really difficult. And then. And then, but really, when the cracks appeared, when I, you know, started studying church history, and and I, I kind of had learned to trust my my critical thinking skills because I dealt, I'd, I'd read some of these issues that I'd read with church history before my mission, but I didn't really quite, you know, I didn't really quite understand what the deal was, or or I was willing to take the uh, the LDS apologists' answer as, oh, okay, that's a solid answer, I'll go with that. But it wasn't until several years after my mission where I really started questioning these things that. Yeah, you really you really do start to see it's like it's like zooming out from, you know, from a painting and you see this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful painting, but then you notice a little tiny little speck in the corner, so you go to inspect it and you notice like an ink spot and so you look at it and you say, "Oh, well, you know, the painting's still beautiful. I'm just going to ignore that that ink blot for now." And then you start to notice more problems. You start to notice more little imperfections in the painting. And then, you know, you pick up the painting to look at it at the back side. And then it all just crumbles into pieces, kind of a thing. Mm. That's 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 how it felt like for me. Um, mm. It really all it really started when I started listening to uh, Dan Vogel, some of his videos, like when he analyzed the the three and eight witnesses, you know, the restoration of the priesthood, all these different things in LDS church history, and he referenced all these books. He, he referenced uh, oh, what's his name? He, he's he used to be LDS. Um, mm. He wrote the uh, D. Michael Quinn. That's his name. So he referenced D. Michael Quinn, you know, and uh, who is favorable towards the church. He's not against the church at all, but he's not a member anymore. And he referenced all these sources, and so I started, you know, trying to find some of these sources and read them. And it's just, it's just like unraveling a sweater. I just kept pulling at the threads, trying to find answers, and it just like I wasn't just pulling away the thread; I was pulling apart myself. Mm-hmm. To where, like Michael is explaining, you, you just really start to question who you are anymore because i said that you know i'm a child of god i'm a latter-day saint i'm a priesthood holder but then when i started finding out well maybe the claims to the priesthood restoration aren't really valid at all then i said well okay maybe i'm not a priesthood holder then and then when you start finding out the the problems with the the doctrinal changes to the both the book of mormon and the changes to joseph smith's first visions those kinds of things then I'm start to question, maybe I'm not really a child of God at all. And it's really terrifying because you, you have no foundation to, to stand on anymore because you feel like what, what the core of what I was, I was slowly picking it apart to where I didn't know what was going to end up at the end. You know, I was like, I was worried. I'm like, 10 years from now, am I going to be an atheist? Like, where am I going to go from here? So it was not only where I was, he- like what I was discovering along the way, but the fear of where I would end up at the end of it all. I tried to have faith and just trust in God and be like, okay, God, well, this will just be a trial of my faith. I'll get through it. I'll be a stronger Latter-day Saint for it. And it'll be like that testimony that I'll bear in fast and testimony meeting where I like, you know, I just had this really rough test of my faith, but God brought me through it. And that's not at all how it ended up, but I praise God for it, despite how difficult it was at the time. 
Yeah, that's good. I, I saw something this week posted by a young Latter Day Saint that that we all know. Uh, I won't I won't name him, but he he posted about the I think it's pronounced the Antikythera machine. Have you have, did you see the post or have you heard of that before? I haven't. Yeah, I saw that post, but I didn't read it. Yeah, so the Antikythera machine is like an ancient. Uh, yeah, it's 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 touted as like an ancient computer, right? It's a it's an ancient uh, navigational system uh, that that uses the stars and and um, it's I, I've seen it used by Latter-day Saints before. And, and the way it's used is to kind of suggest, Hey, you know, this, this ancient computer exists. And, and obviously it's not a computer like we have today, but it's a very complex machine that was built and used a long time ago. And the, the suggestion is, Hey, there's the, there's this ancient computer and because it exists and we didn't expect it to exist. Uh, therefore, there could be forthcoming evidence for the Book of Mormon. So let's hold on to our faith in, in the Book of Mormon, right? And <laughs> it, wait, 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 wait. Could you go over that again? Because I, I don't, I don't understand. How does that? What does that have to do with the Book of Mormon? It's a giant it, leap. That's what it is. Exactly, it's a giant leap. But but it's but it's so the suggestion is okay. We wouldn't expect an ancient computer to exist because we ex- we expect ancient peoples to have been less sophisticated than we are. But we found archaeologists have found this Antikythera machine, which is a very complex system to help with navigation in the ancient world. And because we wouldn't expect to find something like that, and we did, that shows that there could be other things that we wouldn't expect to find based on what we currently know about the ancient world that we may find in the future. And therefore, we can hold on to our belief in the Book of Mormon because the evidence is still forthcoming. That's the lead. You know what? I'm I'm actually convinced by this um, that dinosaurs are still alive today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but on a serious note, you know, the post reminded me of of an experience I had on my mission. We we used to do street contacting uh, the in like the subway stations in Budapest were you know obviously underground, and then you would come up uh, a couple of uh, either an escalator or, you know, come up a couple levels to almost street level. And then under, you know, you would come up on either side, you know, either of the four corners of a, of an intersection on street level, right? Well, underneath the, underneath the intersection, there was the underground and we would go down there and do street contacting because there was always tons of people passing through to go from, you know, a bus to a subway or, you know, making a transition. And so it was a great place to be able to talk to people. Though realizing now that most of those people were rushing to work or whatever, wherever else they were going. And, you know, we were probably annoying them to no end by trying to stop them and talk to them. But, um, I did stop and talk to this one guy and he, you know, seemed interested in what I was telling him about the Book of Mormon. You know, I was kind of flipping through and showing, showing him the pictures that were in the, the Hungarian edition of the Book of Mormon, you know, of like Mayan ruins with, Jesus coming down and, and teaching the Nephites, right? I think you're all familiar with that painting. And um, he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with you guys. And he gave me, you know, his address. And, you know, we went home and looked it up on a map. And it was like an hour outside of the city. You know, we would have to take a train there and spend an entire afternoon going down and back. And so we decided when things got a little slow that we would, you know, call him up and see if he'd be interested and we'd go meet with them. So he was. And so like, you know, a couple of weeks after I had contacted him, we went down there and he hijacked our entire, you know, we thought we were going to give him our message and he hijacked our entire afternoon talking about Eric von Daniken. Have you ever heard of this guy? No, no, he's a Swiss author that he, he wrote a number of books, but his theory is basically that there's, there's a lot that we don't know about, ancient civilizations that they were far more complex than we give them credit for. And the result, the reason for that is that they were taught by extraterrestrials. Uh-huh. Um, and he doesn't mean little green men. Like his theory is like, you know, extraterrestrial humanoids who came here, you know, astronauts from other planets who came and taught the ancients how to build pyramids and all that kind of stuff. So this guy just hijacked our entire afternoon, showing us his collection of, of Von Daniken books and talking about it, talking about how he thinks there's probably a connection, you know, with, with what we were telling him about 
Jesus visiting America and what Van Von Daniken talks about. And like, I, I don't know if you guys had experiences like that on your mission where you were just like, get me out of here, you know, but you couldn't extract yourself from, (laughs) from the conversation without seeming like really socially rude, you know? So you just kind of had to sit and listen until they were done talking. Did you ever have experiences like that? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh man. So did. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, whole afternoon wasted my companion and I, get back on the train to head back to Budapest. And my companion is just jazzed up about it. You know, he's like, man, that was such a waste of time. And we didn't even get to give our message. And, and can you believe that guy? Like there's no evidence at all for what that guy was talking about, (laughs) you know? And I, I was sitting there on the train thinking, man, what would I give as evidence for what I'm trying to tell him? You know, I'm trying to tell him about the book of Mormon and I've got nothing. And it was, it was kind of one of those situations. And so, you know, the whole, the whole post about the Antikythera machine kind of reminded me like that sent me on a, on a journey to try to, try to find evidence. Right. And I came home from my mission and I, I signed up for the, the farms, uh, journal of book of Mormon studies to try to get into the, into the, you know, Mormon scholarly approaches to the book of Mormon and, you know, read all of the books from them and. But one other thing that I did when I came home from my mission is I got into uh, an author named Graham Hancock, who has similar uh, theory about the ancient past to Von Daniken, except he he doesn't take it to extraterrestrials. He takes it to the lost city of Atlantis, right? Okay, so the ancient civilizations are more complex than we give them credit for. They're more advanced than we give them credit for. And the reason is because they learned it from the inhabitants of the lost city of Atlantis, which is gone now. So that whole theory, you know, but I came home from my mission and I bought a couple books by Graham Hancock. One of them is called fingerprints of the gods where he kind of goes through his whole theory. And then the other one is called the sign and the seal where he like goes on this search for the, the, um, Ark of the covenant in Africa. And I was, I went to a, uh, a pioneer day dinner at my ward um, freshly home off my mission. And I've got my Graham Hancock book with me. And I'm, I used to take a book with me everywhere I go, which is a lot easier to do. And without being socially awkward now that you have, we have like the Kindle app, but I was sitting there at this dinner reading by myself and the guy who had been my priest quorum advisor and who was now in the bishopric approached me and asked what I was reading. And I told him, you know, hey, I'm reading this book called Fingerprints of the Gods. And I explained to him, you know, who Graham Hancock was and what it was about. And he kind of looked at me with a glint in his eye and was like, hey, uh, that sounds pretty apostate, you know, kind of joking <laughs> with me, you know, but he was like, be careful, you know. And I, I share that because it plays into identity, right? Because his warning is like, hey, stay within the lines of of what's you know set out and and circumscribed by the church. Don't go outside of that, or you're apostate, right? And that 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 experience kind of plagued me for the next ten years as I went through my faith transition. You know, I didn't want to go outside of the box. I didn't want to to look at that stuff as you were talking about, Matthew. You know, the, the D. Michael Quinn stuff. I didn't, you know, like to this day, I still haven't read No Man Knows My History, right? Because that's verboten. I've got it on my shelf. I need to read it at some point, but I still haven't because, you know, as I went through my faith transition, I was trying to read faithful sources, faithful LDS sources. You know, I was trying to get the answers from, from the horse's mouth, you know, and that, that experience I had with, with, uh, that member of my bishopric was was formative because it it kept me within the lines for a long time um, because we all want to we all want to belong right and and that was my tribe and I, I really wanted to belong you know when when we were on our way out and I would have conversations with Angela you know Michael you when uh, you talked you talked about when Romney ran in 2012 you you wrote your book right yep. well when Romney was running in 2008 in the primaries the first time. I was, you know, in a place where I had moved on from wanting to be in a Mormon apologist because I didn't think I could uh, defend it to I'm going to be a cultural Mormon and I'm going to write fiction, right? I'm going to write the great, great Mormon novel. <laughs> that was where I was in my head. And I would have these conversations with Angela, you know, and we would talk about leaving and, and trying something different. And I'd be like, I, where are we going to go? 
I'm a Mormon. I'm always going to be a Mormon. It's who I am. It's my identity. And so it, it was very much a part of me. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. Light. I am the way and the truth